Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my times radio show. Politics without the boring bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, as the world faces another major conflict, I've been looking at the history, the shape, the changing nature of warfare with General David Petraeus, former head of the CIA, oversaw operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the historian Andrew Roberts. have got a new book out looking at conflict since the Second World War. Really fascinating chat with them, giving some sense of the shape of how conflicts unfold, particularly our focus was on Ukraine. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at a smorgasbord of news with today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. The new independent on Sunday. Are you getting the full story? Yeah, it's nice for joining. There's another independent on the Sunday reunion. Uh, former employees of Britain's least read and uh, now non-existent Sunday newspaper. Uh, Jane Berwick, former Police Coast Independent on Sunday, now policy editor of the Eye. Morning. Morning. And uh, Tom McTague, former Police Coast of the Independent on Sunday, now Police Coast of Unheard. Hello, Tom. Hello. Uh, that ad, of course, back in the glory days of the Independent on Sunday, long before any of us were there. Um... <laughs> Uh, let's start with the uh, conflict in Israel, where Rishi Sunak has called for the Middle East peace process to be restarted with the escalating crisis in Israel and Gaza. This was the Prime Minister speaking in the Commons yesterday. We will use all the tools of British diplomacy to sustain the prospects of peace and stability in the region. Ultimately, that requires security for Israelis and Palestinians and a two-state solution. Our partners in the region have asked us to play a role in preventing further escalation. That is what we will do. Jane, do you think Rishi Sunak has any credibility in this? Does Britain have any sort of purchase or agency in this, in this discussion? They don't have a lot, to be honest. I mean, obviously, since the attacks, Rishi Sunak has been doing a lot of phone call diplomacy, spoken to regional leaders, to the US, to European leaders. But, you know, Britain's involvement in the Middle East peace process has been non barely existent for about a decade. The last time a British Prime Minister went to Israel was in 2014 with David Cameron. I mean, under Blair and Brown, you know, they would go probably once a year as part of their um, international efforts. So it's it's very difficult. I mean, it's not to say that sort of obviously, you know, this, this crisis is the fault of Hamas. It's not the fault of yeah, yeah. a lack of Western engagement. But given that we are where we are now, and given that it's really important that this doesn't spill over into a regional war, given that the long-term aims surely have to be get that, to get that peace process started again, we do need leaders, political leaders in, in the West and in the UK and the US, just to have more credibility, to say that they've, you know, they've ha- continued a dialogue for the last few years, and that hasn't been really there at all. It's amazing, actually, Tom, when you think that Tony Blair's post-Downing Street life was is a Middle East... Was it Middle East Envoy? Is that they called yes, it? Quartet. Yeah, uh, The Quartet. You know, to try and, you know, bring about peace in the Middle East is so far away from the level of engagement we've seen in, in recent times. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's um, when he went out there, you you saw him as this. Obviously, he he'd had the um, the legacy of Iraq, which which I think really made it, his job there very very difficult. But he also had the legacy of Northern Ireland, and so he had this. Um, sense or this reputation as somebody who could bring people together but it's just so much more difficult um than than northern ireland and he ultimately he left having completely failed and i don't think any of us would even know who the current quartet representative is even if there is one you know he was replaced by somebody else uh, but i think that tells you how little hope there is at the moment and and kind of understandably so as well because how do you have dialogue with Hamas because they just don't believe that Israel has a right to exist. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do you even start a negotiation with people who have a, effectively a genocidal intent? That's been the problem, of course, that sort of after 2001, the 9-11 attacks, there was a real sort of, as Tony Blair called it, a reshaking of the mm-hmm. um, the kaleidoscope. And there was an opportunity then. You'd had, um, you know, the Oslo Accords in 93 and 95. There was, on both sides, there was a sort of a, a will to to work towards a two-state solution, but the two extremes of the Palestinian and Israeli cause kept on taking over, and we had obviously Hamas winning elections in in Gaza in 2006. So as the the West has stepped back, those extremes have been able to take over in in the Middle East, and I think this is a combination of the two that that means that we're in a very difficult situation now. And actually the local, the sort of regional framework with the Abraham Accords um, in 2020 of... Israel normalising relations with the UAE and, and Bahrain, that has been taking place without any real Western yeah. engagement. So where, you know, where is the role now? I think if Tony Blair were in office now, you could imagine him going to Israel, you know, talk about Biden going tomorrow. No one's really talking about the expectation of Rishi Sunak going to Tel Aviv this week. But also, I suppose, in like practical terms, what difference does it make, Tom? Your ability to go basically to Israel and say... You know, you need to operate with inside international law. It has to be a proportional response. You have to deal with the humanitarian impacts of your actions. You know, bluntly, people are far more likely to take notice of that if you've engaged with them at some point in the past. And for whatever reason, Britain just hasn't been engaged in that part of the world and lots of the other parts of the world as well because of our sort of turning in on ourselves so much. Even if Rishi, I mean, if Rishi Sunak did bowl up in Israel right now, they'd probably be like, who, who are you? What are you, what are you? Why are you turning up now? But, I mean, what do we have to offer? I mean, bluntly, I mean, we, we, what purchase do we have? I know we've sent some military assets out there to try and support Israel, and that gives us some some skin in the game, I guess. But like, ultimately, this is an American problem. You know, they are they are the guarantor here. They are the security guarantor, and so we do want Biden to go. That's the most important thing that can happen from a Western perspective. And I guess. To push back slightly on Jane there, just that the Abraham Accords have been pushed by the United States and I think are backed by by most of us here. So I don't know, they 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 seemed possibly quite a breakthrough moment, but it but I, I guess that their big flaw was exposed as well in that they were based on the premise that we could just park the Palestinian issue. You know, for so long, um our focus has been on this idea of peace for land in, to some to some extent, you know, that Israel would give up some of its control of land in return for being recognised and its security being guaranteed. And essentially Hamas has completely rejects that approach. And so it's left Israel in a position where, well, what does it do? How, how, how does it move beyond that? If you, if you can't go down a road of peace for land, 
what do you do? And so the Abraham Accords are a way of saying, okay, well, we'll just try and normalize relations with all the great powers of the Middle East. And we'll just all have to agree that this this problem that we all know is a problem, we'll just have to try and ignore it. And obviously Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah are intent on saying, well, no, we're not going to let you ignore it. Well, we'll see what happens. And it, you know, I don't think there is any talk, particularly if we see that go there, but we'll see what comes out of uh, Joe Biden's visit tomorrow. But, you know, I think one immediate impact of it is that Israel will hold off on its uh, uh, ground offensive until presumably after he's been and gone. Uh, let's come back close to home then. And the uh, COVID inquiry is uh, back up and running. And lawyers for St. Pa- uh, St. Patrick Valance have told the inquiry that full pages from his diary should not be shown on a screen during public hearings. Instead, uh, they've just been referred to and bits of them have been read out. Uh, it's because his, his diaries were just evening notes in the pandemic he uses a brain dump to protect his mental health. Um, what should we be worried about? Is this an invasion of privacy, Jane? Um, the thing I don't really understand is either they're for the public domain mm. or they're not. Reading bits out but not showing them on a screen feels like sort of dancing on the head of a pin. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not obviously not a lawyer, but I don't think he's he's got a very strong case here because he has be, he's handed over this incredibly important, I mean, it's probably the most important account, insider account of how the government responded to the COVID inquiry that is from a neutral position. Obviously, we've had Matt Hancock's diaries, whether they were contemporaneous or not is up for a debate. We have Boris Johnson's notebooks. Obviously, they were from a very political point of view. Patrick Vallance's diary is so important. It's so crucial. It's probably, you know, it's it's of huge historical value as well as importance of this inquiry. And I think you're right. You know, you can't really have it both ways. If you've handed them over... Part, you know, parts of them have been redacted anyway because obviously, presumably, he made some very personal notes that aren't relevant. But the relevant parts to the inquiry, I think the public does have a right to know, the media has a right to know, the families have a right to know because this is such a crucial account of what happened. And I think it's slightly, you know, every other witness has had their, either their emails or text messages or WhatsApps have been shown on the screen in, in the inquiry room. I don't really see why we can't see, is it because of the handwriting? Is there some sort of issue there? I don't really understand what the reason is. So in one entry, he wrote of chaos as usual in uh, Downing Street uh, and bipolar decision-making, impossible flip-flopping. Uh, he also in another one described then Prime Minister Boris Johnson as all over the place and so completely inconsistent. Uh, and it also discussed... The, the slight feeling that he and uh, Chris Whitty were being used as a sort of uh, cover for what the, the decisions were being made. Um, but interestingly, uh, Tom, he handed these over voluntarily to the inquiry and is now trying to stop them ending up in the public domain. It just seems very odd to me. I mean, that does seem odd. Because I was going to say to you that I, I feel slightly conflicted about it. In It seems to me that it should be okay for people in public life to write diaries or, you know, text their friends or let off steam in some way to, you know, I don't know, their wives, their family, whoever, and that not eventually end up in the public domain. That There should be forums which are private. But if he's handed these things over voluntarily, then that seems uh, to kind of negate everything I'm saying. I, I, I get the sense of it's a little bit like the freedom of information request and, and the kind of impact it's had on government where 
if you want to then discuss things privately, you you just take yourself off into a room and you just discuss it verbally rather than write anything down because you know that it's eventually going to make its way to the into the public. And so, does that lead to better government, better outcomes? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure, but I think ultimately, if he's if he's handed these things over voluntarily, then you know, tough. Yes, they've they've been reading out extracts, and some of the laws have read out extracts, but they've not been displayed on screen. Eight media organisations have made a submission saying that the notes uh, should be displayed in context as part of the page of the diary in which they were originally written. They, uh, his, to Patrick's legal team, said it would be a breach of his human rights. And only the words directly relevant to questions should be displayed in public. Um, but yeah, it just strikes me as odd that he's handed it over now he's, he's concerned. I suppose if we zoom out a little bit for this, this particular row, Jade, it's just a reminder, actually, that as Rishi Sunak uh, plots his way to a general election at some point next year, this inquiry is going to be grinding on in the background and, you know, evidence sessions have happened and they've got, you know, they've disappeared, you know, below the waterline and other things happening in the news. But every so often it's going to bubble up again and there'll be a reminder that he was the Chancellor spending all the money telling us to eat out or help out or not providing funding for schools or, uh, or whatever. And that is just, it's just another thing in the in the balance that he's going to have to have to sort of live with. Absolutely. I mean, there's nine weeks of this module alone running up till early December. I think Rishi Sunak will be the final witness in the last week of the inquiry. There'll be Boris Johnson who will have his say and, you know, that's going to be box office um, moment. And then Rishi Sunak who will be asked, yes, about why didn't you provide more money to get school? You know, the... the, um, government's expert education czar said 15 billion, I think, and, and Rishi Sunak only gave a fraction of that. Really important um, moment. Also, eat out to help out, as you say. A key a key moment which scientists, you know, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, didn't even know about eat out to help out before it was announced. And they said, well, actually, you know, Patrick Valance's diary showed that actually if they'd asked us, we would have said, don't do it, because it's just going to fuel cases. Yeah. And I think we've, we've been so sort of focused on Boris Johnson and his WhatsApps and what he did or didn't do as Prime Minister. But obviously, Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister now, and as it is going to continue in the run-up to the election, I think, crucially, what the families were unhappy about was that the um, the health module, which is going to show how care homes were basically let, mm. let to the wolves of the virus, that's going to be after the election. And I think they were deeply unhappy about that because they wanted to um, for it to be to come out about how much the government yeah, yeah. did or didn't do about elderly COVID victims. There's also the fact that at various points, Tom, am I right in remembering that Rishi Sunak has almost sort of boasted that he tried to resist more lockdowns because he was trying to mm. protect the economy? Mm. Well, one person's protect the economy is another person's not doing enough on the on the health side. And if Boris Johnson, for instance, were to appear and say, I wanted a lockdown earlier, but Rishi Sunak wouldn't. The one thing we know from the British public, despite the noisy people who don't like lockdowns, is that the British public really supported the lockdowns. You couldn't lock down enough. I remember at one point there was a poll that showed it was like 20% of people wanted to shut nightclubs forever uh, <laughs> and never come back to them. So, it, you know, this could end up being a problem, you know, yet another problem for, for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, will never underestimate how authoritarian the British public are. I think you, 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 you had this, didn't you, all the way through Tony Blair's premiership. You know, he would always say, well, for whatever whatever controversial thing he was he was putting forward, ID cards, I think, were the famous one. Mm. He would always say, look, the public are massively in favour of ID cards. It's, you know, David Davis and the like do not represent uh, the British public. I don't know, I, I wonder where the British public is now on lockdowns. And that whole that whole period of time, because I, I remember absolutely, as you say, Matt, like comp- clearly everybody uh, that I knew was in favour and felt that the government had been 
slow. But I, he I hear more and more, just anecdotally, that towards the end of this process, people are now are sort of a little bit uneasy with some of the steps that we took, yeah. whether it's you know, locking students down in, in their halls and, you know, sending monitors around to, to, to see if they are, you know, breaking the rules. Um, or, or particularly, I think, and Jane touched on this, uh, schools. Mm. And I, I don't, I don't know where the British public is on that. And I would be interested to know like, what the inquiry is going to not just not just fall down on which side it's going to fall down, but is it only going to be about um, deaths in the end or, uh, you know, cases? Or is it going to be about proportionality and um, the effect that we've had on on school school children? Um, I, I just, I just don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm again completely. Then it's a sort of, then it's a sort of investigation of the whole of society, which is a really yeah. difficult. Yeah, you know, thing. yeah. And actually, one of the lines of questioning from Hugo Keith, the lead QC, has been on: did, did we lock down too much? You know, was there mm. any consideration of the economic impact? Yeah. There was actually no planning. You know, nobody was talking about lockdowns until early March. It yeah. was completely out mm. of the blue. So even Chris Whitty has said that you know, in in some excerpts from his um, advice, that. They just didn't. They didn't plan for it. So yeah, when yeah. they did plan for it, it was kind of botched. And they didn't, yeah. Well, Jane, well, well, you and I in that very first uh, pub, uh, briefing from Chris Whitty mm. way back in was it February twenty twenty or January twenty twenty, yeah. and the plan then was very clearly um, that you know we have to think of this over a two year period. We have to assume that most people are going to get it, and we we have to stagger it, but we have to at least we can't stop that process yeah and i remember i remember that very clearly and thought okay that makes sense you know i understand that and they and we and i think that that was in the in the newspapers quite uh, quite quickly after that and then that that process was abandoned and yet you kind of look back at it two years later and think well that's kind of what's happened yeah and britain has ended up right in the middle of the pack as far as I understand yeah, exactly. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, the performance. The, yeah, yeah. Now, Jane, every time you come on, we end up talking about trees, uh, because you saved a tree. I did near your house, which also turned out to be near producer Lewis's house. Well, uh, in Plymouth, they've been chopping down trees. You remember this story, uh, where in March the Conservative-led City Council started chopping down 110 trees overnight before court order stopped it. Led to massive public backlash. The council leader resigned, and in May, Labour took control of the council. Was it all down to the trees? Uh, in fact, the local Conservative MP Johnny Mercer said the trees was part of the reason why the Tories lost. Well, now the Labour council is planning to almost double the number of trees that were there originally. The new council leader Tudor Evans is on the line. Hi, Tudor. How are you, Matt? Very well, very well. Good to have you with us. So, uh, how many trees are you going to plant now in Plymouth? Um, so 202 trees are going into a Mardaway uh, in the first phase, and then we've got a second phase where there'll be another 150. So there'll be there'll be a lot more trees, uh, but it's more to it than the trees. Um, we're going to increase the biodiversity of a Mardaway by introducing bug houses. Uh, the trees that were picked are insect-friendly and bird-friendly, as well as friendly on the eye in all seasons of the year. So we're really excited about the, the nature side of stuff. Yeah. When, um, you, when you say you're going to plant 200, what's the sort of... Because quite often people plant trees. You know, you see councils plant trees, and they don't all survive. You sort of have to overplant to make sure you get enough there. So will you end up ultimately with 200 trees there? Or, you know... Does, yeah, we, we're not going for the spindly little ones that... Uh, we're going for some semi-mature trees. They'll all be semi-mature. So there'll be something between three and a half to eight metres tall when they go in. So oh, okay. um, 
they'll, they'll all be glory again. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, this is good news. It's great news. I mean, I think, I think actually, you know, the Sycamore Gap tree, everybody was incredibly sad. It was an mm. amazing landmark and everything else. And it showed how much love there is for trees. But it's not just about sort of one famous tree. Street trees, urban trees are so important to reduce pollution, to just basically make our environment better. And I think what's really fascinating that's happened in Plymouth is that the, lo- the local opinion, you know, they actually, the, lo- the Tories yeah, lost they, the local yeah. elections on the back of it. There was so much anger. And it's really encouraging to know that actually de- democracy can work in that way to really, you know, respond to what was obviously a terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. decision. But also, it's, just, a, it's just, a, just such a concrete example of what the council's responsible for, such a sort yes. of visual thing. Uh, uh, Tom, do you care about trees? <laughs> I do, yeah. I was driving down a, a road the other day and I was saying to my wife, why is it that this road just feels ugly? Like, what is it about it And compared to this other road that we'd just gone down? And I was just trying to sort of figure it out because it didn't seem that the houses were particularly bad. And I just thought it was trees. It was like it was just one was a tree lined street and it looked nice and the other one wasn't and it looked ugly. And I just think, well, that is quite important. Well, there we are. Um, we all like the trees. Go on, then. Go on, Tudor. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, don't forget, I mean, we've got a lot of tree cover in Plymouth. We've got 64,000 trees. We planted 10,000 trees over the last couple of years. And we've got 30 tree planting schemes across the city right now. Um, We've also got an underwater forest. Our contribution to the Queen's Canopy wasn't um, uh, uh, on land, but under the water where we put a kelp forest in. So we're doing really interesting things in Britain's Ocean City to, uh, you know, our our green credentials are pretty good. Tom McTague from Unheard and Jane Merrick from The Eye. Don't forget to hit subscribe to the pod so you don't miss any future episodes, including you now get bonus episodes if you are a time subscriber. Every week you get a bonus episode of the weekend. So make sure you've got a time subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the changing nature of war. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the changing nature of conflict today following the savage attack on its citizens, leaving more than 1,300 dead. The Israeli government says its stated plan is to eliminate the terrorist group Hamas. But once Israeli ground forces cross into the densely populated Gaza Strip, where will the conflict turn next? General David Petraeus was the best-known commander in George W. Bush's war on terror, leading Allied forces in Iraq and Afghanistan before becoming director of the CIA. Yesterday, he spoke to Times Radio about how difficult it would be to tackle Hamas in Gaza. This is a mission that the military can carry out, but the risks are very substantial. The, the context could not be more challenging. Fighting an enemy terrorists uh, who don't wear uniforms, who can drop their weapons, will fight from civilian buildings and infrastructure whose headquarters, bases and 
facilities are underneath hospitals, inside mosques, and so forth. Um, we'll employ suicide bombers. Uh, we'll have improvised explosive devices. You know, if the defense is as creative as the terrible attack was, uh, there's no question that the, the challenges of urban warfare, normal challenges, will be further augmented. So as a new chapter in modern warfare begins in the Middle East, what can we learn from conflicts of the past? Before the attack on Israel took place, I spoke to General David Petraeus and the historian Andrew Roberts about their new book examining every major post-1945 conflict from China's civil war to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Like I said, the interview was recorded before the attack on Israel. And I began by asking Andrew Roberts, Lord Roberts, how they approached such a big task. I'd never done sort of um, modern history before. Uh, I like everybody to be safely dead before <laughs> I uh, ever write about them. And, uh, and so this was a completely new departure. And I got on to David very shortly after the invasion of um, Ukraine and said that I thought that we needed to have a military history book that uh, put the invasion and the war into its uh, military uh, uh, context and it was something that he immediately picked up and uh, and we uh, I'd never co-authored a book before either by the way and that was <laughs> mildly nerve-wracking but uh, but it turned out uh, extremely well we've actually done a number of things in the past I'd actually been to the Clifton Literary Festival uh, and he interviewed me on stage I interviewed him on stage numerous times over his Churchill book at the New York Historical Society we even had a delightful appearance at the Army Museum here when his um, George III book came out, uh, where the question that he posed to me was, could the British forces have actually won the American War of Independence? The answer to which is, yes, of course, if they'd had a competent civil military counterinsurgency campaign. I just wondered whether the process of having a real life military commander in front of you when you were considering these questions changed your approach to it? Um, yes, it did. It yeah. did. I mean, the, um, the idea of taking decisions, highly pressurised decisions in, in um, circumstances that I could never myself imagine, um, where people's actual lives and deaths uh, depend on what those decisions are, is something that I know to be beyond me. It was Dr Johnson who said that um, everyone who didn't has never worn uniform holds their life cheap, as it were, before um, uh, soldiers. And so I do feel that kind of respect for David, of course. And David, did you, how did you find the process of finding decisions that you'd taken being treated as history in a book that you were writing with a historian? Well, it was actually very enjoyable to go back and revisit yeah. some of these. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a history as an academic as well. I've had, I don't know, four or five different academic appointments. I did a PhD in a combination of international relations and economics at Princeton. I wrote a dissertation on the American military and the lessons of Vietnam. That was a So we divvied up the chapters, basically. We took turns leading. Naturally, I did the chapters on Iraq and Afghanistan, having commanded both of those wars. Um, and by the way, the editor very wisely, I thought, took our third person uh, writing on those two chapters and said, you know what, that should be in the first person. It's a little bit awkward for one of the authors to say, and then General Petraeus went yeah. to see President Brilliant. Bush. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, so instead, there, we put a little asterisk at the beginning of those two, and those actually are in the first person. It was very interesting to revisit Vietnam. I'd written my dissertation at the 10-year after the withdrawal uh, moment, 10 years after the collapse of Vietnam. And there'd been a great deal more scholarship in the ensuing decades. And it actually did cause me to reassess, uh, frankly, how 
inadequately we did in terms of getting the big ideas right for Vietnam, really in the same way that the French did before us. We also cover the, the French uh, experience there. Uh, you know, one of their big ideas was, let's go to this place called Dien Bien Phu, we'll build a big defense, and that'll finally attract the North Vietnamese, they'll finally be brought to battle. And of course, we will then take care of them, and obviously the, the opposite transpired. And then, in the case of the U.S. and Vietnam, it took us at least until 1968 to get the overarching strategy right, and by that time, public opinion, domestic support for the U.S. was already crumbling and, and really we didn't have the opportunity to implement them. If I could, there's one big theme actually that yeah. as, we, as we crafted all these chapters, we went back and said, you know what, we have to make this much more explicit at the beginning. And that is the importance in conflict of strategic leadership, which has to perform four tasks. It has to get the big ideas right. You have to understand the context, the situation, the strengths, weaknesses, limitations, adversaries, all of this and you have to craft the right strategy, the right big ideas. You have to com communicate the big ideas effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization and to all other stakeholders. And then you have to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. And this is both at the very top in terms of civilian leadership. You know, George H.W. Bush then at the very first meeting after the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait says this will not stand. Well, that's a pretty, I got that. We military can understand that. Yeah. You know, we now know what we need to do. Maggie Thatcher saying the Falklands, this will not stand. Um, but then it's very much the commander of the military theater, of the war, if you will. What I was privileged to do, obviously, during the surge in Iraq and then also in the, in the surge in Afghanistan. And so we went back and really emphasized that and sort of relooked the chapters in terms of what was the quality of strategic leadership? And interestingly, in, in Ukraine, you have a compare and contrast. You have a president of Ukraine who's been almost flawless uh, in terms of strategic leadership. His first big idea is, I, I don't want to ride, I want ammunition. I'm going to stay in Kyiv instead of going to Lviv, the West. I'm going to keep my family here. And oh, by the way, all Ukrainian males are going to stay in the country as well. And then builds on that and then communicates beautifully, Churchillian really, uh, to every parliament, legislature, Bundestag, and so forth. Very impressive, overseeing the implementation of the big ideas, visiting the front lines, all the other qualities that you'd look for, but has also then overseen an effort that has adapted the big ideas as, for example, when the counteroffensive this summer runs into this incredibly formidable Russian defense, they recognize that they're going to have to change what they're doing. The, the, the minefields are much deeper than was ever anticipated. And so they're gonna to have to do this with infantrymen, not with armored vehicles. And Andrew, when you're looking back over, over the period of what, 70 years, is it, is it the case that history repeats itself? The politics might change, the geography might change, the technology definitely changes, but actually it's about ultimately war is human beings you know, approaching the same thing, I want to defeat you. And actually the way that wa wars and conflicts pan out, is it always the same? Um, no, it's not always the same. In a sense, of course, war, you're right, warfare has been the same ever since the Peloponnesian Wars, you know, in the, in the 5th century BC. But with regard to um, strategy and tactics, with regard to, as you mentioned, the actual equipment, the kit, tanks, for example, and anti-tank weaponry and so on, the, the lessons very often are learned. A classic example being 
the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East in 1973, where the Pentagon sent guys out there as soon as the war was over to interview people and to look at exactly what was going on in order to try and learn lessons, which they then put into effect in the first Gulf War in uh, 1990. Interesting, though, when we come to the Ukraine war, we had this sort of period, certainly in the UK and I think elsewhere, where we had politicians, including Boris Johnson, saying we don't need tanks, that's all, you know, it's all going to be drones and it's all going to be remote. And actually what we're seeing in Ukraine is quite an old-fashioned conflict, like you were saying, David, where you've got soldiers on the ground, tanks. Yes, there are drones, but in lots of other ways, it's quite an old-fashioned conflict. Actually, sometimes we learn the wrong lessons. It's actually many different conflicts. Yeah. There's shades of World War One again, with these trenches and tank ditches and uh, dragon's teeth and concertina wire and, again, miles deep uh, minefields and so forth, again, hearkening back to the, the Great War. You have echoes of the Cold War. The very same armored systems that are largely on the battlefield here were what we were using when I was a major in the inner German border as a brigade operations officer, had that ever gone hot. But then you're also seeing hints of the wars of the future, and you're seeing it all in a context that is uniquely transparent. We've never ever fought a war before where everybody on the battlefield has a smartphone, there's internet access, and there are social media sites, websites, and everything else into which you can upload videos, photos, statements, and so forth. Um, and of course, you also see very rapid advances, actually, in various unmanned systems. And they're already beyond the remotely piloted systems into what are essentially algorithmically or software-driven systems. So this is a, many wars all in one. Um, and we've looked at this. Is this the future of warfare? Well, not really. Again, that future is even beyond this. But it has a lot of hints, a lot of signposts to what the future of war could be. I'm sorry, could I just say there's a great line from an American general who once said that uh, with regard to the tank, it's a bit like the dinner jacket in that you don't need it very often, but when you do, nothing else will do. <laughs> you need to get it out of the cupboard and dust it off and hope it, hope it still fits. And again, you know, we've seen the, quote, demise of the tank before. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, the Yom Kippur War, one of the early lessons wrong was that these anti-tank guided missiles that the Soviets have, have given to the Arab forces are so lethal that the tank can't operate. Well, that was until the Israelis counterattacked and actually yeah. took back the territory and entrapped one of the Egyptian armies and so forth. So there's always a back and forth. There's always an offense, defense. There's a reaction, counter-reaction. And we see that playing out literally on this battlefield. And it is being played out there. So David Petraeus, you talked about how President Zelensky's got the leadership thing nailed uh, and he's not losing the war, but he's not winning it either. What are the factors that we would need to see in Ukraine to take surviving into a convict? Can, is, it, is it possible for Ukraine to win the war in the traditional sense of the word win? I, I think it's possible. It's by no means assured. Uh, it will require on continued substantial resources from the US and the West. It's going to require continued force generation uh, in a country that has one-third, less than one-third, the population of its adversary, Russia, uh, an economy that's even smaller than that of Russia. So again, the U.S.-led Western support, which, by the way, has featured the U.K. very often ahead of the U.S. on certain key decisions. And in some respects, we've almost drafted off the U.K. in a couple of key junctures here. Um, that support is absolutely crucial. In, in my view, it very much should continue. I think this is about as right versus wrong as it's possible to get 
in our lifetimes, a brutal, unprovoked invasion of a sovereign country in the heart of Europe. And how long would that take? No one can tell. Yeah. Again, and, and there's a lot of it depends on. You know, I used to teach economics, so you always answer every question by starting, it depends on. And there's a number, <laughs> there's a number of factors there. One of them that bears very careful watching is could the Russian forces begin to crack or crumble at some point in time? They're taking horrific losses. Uh, Russia has already taken many, many times in the losses in the first 19 months of this war that they took in nearly 10 years in Afghanistan, a war that ultimately was assessed by those in the Kremlin as being unsustainable. And what we need to do is enable Ukraine to the greatest extent that we possibly can to convince the current uh, occupant ruler of the Kremlin that this war is also unsustainable. Again, not just by what's happening on the battlefield, but also by the financial, economic, and, and personal sanctions and export controls, and now the cracking down on the sanctions evasion as well. And we did, uh, David and I went to Kyiv um, in the course of researching this book, and he's been there since uh, only about a month ago. And, uh, you know, there is the most extraordinarily high morale in that uh, in that um, country, considering what they've taken uh, over the last year and a half. It is uh, pretty incredible. Now let's turn our attention to whether there are any lessons from history, from the book, that could give us some sense of what's happening now in Ukraine. You can compare and contrast the very impressive strategic leadership of President Zelensky and, frankly, also of his uh, commander-in-chief of the military forces, General Zeluzhny, with whom I spent a couple of hours uh, about four weeks ago, uh, and then that of Putin. But by no means has this brought Putin down. By no means has it brought about defeat yet on the battlefield. But Putin made colossal mistakes. I mean, his big ideas were incredibly flawed. Let's recognize the incredible paradox here that he set out to make Russia great again. What he's really done is make NATO great again. I mean, he's actually compelled two historically neutral countries to seek membership in NATO as yeah. quickly as they possibly could. Finland already a member, Sweden that will be once the situation in Turkey and, and Hungary is sorted out. Um, he's been literally the greatest gift to NATO since the end of the Cold War. Again, how ironic that is. He was also very critical of Gorbachev for bringing about the demise of the Soviet Union and undermining it in such a fashion. And yet here he has done enormous damage uh, to the Russian Federation, to its economy and so forth. But not enough yet where he has looked in the mirror and said, oh my gosh, I've made this catastrophically bad decision. I got to figure out how to get us out of it. Uh, the way that his predecessors did getting out the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. And again, we need to hasten that moment uh, that he finally does recognize that reality. But it's by no means a sure thing. And yet Vladimir Putin sitting in the Kremlin and just looking across at what's happening in Washington and just seeing support for Ukraine joining the long list of political footballs that get tossed around in American politics. You've got parts of the Republican Party now seizing on this as another stick to beat Joe Biden with. A couple of weeks ago got taken out of the, of the deal to, to avoid a shutdown. Donald Trump clearly far less committed to uh, Ukraine than, than Joe Biden. How serious is that threat that Ukraine actually becomes a sort of almost like a culture war issue? Actually, America's had enough, you know, as Donald Trump said many times, America's had enough of spending a lot of money and losing lives in conflicts a long way away. They're nothing to do with us. How much does that worry you? It's a, it's a concern. It's a legitimate one. By the way, when I was in Ukraine again less than a month ago, they were concerned about two things. Uh, one is the challenges on the battlefield, the, the difficulty of these defenses that they're breaching however slowly, uh, but gradually 
fighting their way through in Zaporizhia down in the south around Robotna and so forth. Uh, but the other was the concern about the challenges in the House of Representatives. That's, this is what that is. There's no question about the bipartisan support, very strong bipartisan support in the Senate. Obviously, the White House, the majority of Americans still very much support Ukraine. Yes, it's gone down a bit, but again, uh, very strong support. And even in the House, there is a, a, the majority of the House members by far want to continue to support Ukraine, but it, because of the way the previous speaker had to grant yeah. concessions to get elected in the 15th ballot, any one member could take him down, which gave enormous importance to any one of those yeah. members who was willing to exercise that right, and of course did. So first of all, you've got to get another speaker. And then the question is going to be, how can they artfully craft legislation? I think there will be a way to craft legislation that has Ukraine support, further support, hopefully that would get us all the way through the election of next year. It would also have, let's say, additional support for southern border security, which is another big issue. Uh, and then something around you know, disaster relief. We've had a number of different calamitous weather effects and other uh, disasters for which there were actually declarations of you know emergency and so forth. Uh, that agency that oversees this has spent most of its money for this fiscal year. It needs additional allocations. Maybe you can put something together like that and then get that through, get through. a house then, that has a new speaker. Happens, I mean, should, your, should European countries be stepping up their commitments their financial military commitments to Ukraine if Donald Trump becomes U.S. president. Well, they should again. do it anyway. I yeah. mean, again, and we've long said this. I've heard presidents of both parties. I mean, I was served in four-star positions under presidents of two different parties and, and secretaries of defense, who I heard at the gathering of defense ministers in Brussels rail about the fact that Europeans needed to spend more. Now, to be fair, we have to recognize, actually, that the Europeans have done far more in terms of financial, economic, and humanitarian assistance than the U.S. has, and they should. This is their continent, after all. But we believe, and there's somebody doing the numbers back in the Institute for the Study of War on his board, I sit, uh, to determine we think that the Europeans have actually pledged more military and security assistance now than the very substantial amount the U.S. has already provided. $44 billion is a huge amount of money. I mean, it's and there's another five or six billion in authorization appropriations that the Defense Department can use that will get us through the interim period. But then we've got to get some new legislation to enable continued support. I know it's always risky asking a historian to predict the future. But well, Andrew also Roberts, a, member, your, your, a <laughs> member of your parliament, don't forget. <laughs> yeah. Baron Roberts of Belgravia, Absolutely after all. Right. And that, you're asking about Ukraine, the future yeah. of that war. Well, you know, in order for there to be peace, you need at least one side to want peace. And, um, and both sides at the moment think that they can win victory. And uh, you don't get a peace anytime soon when that happens. What I would say is that you're absolutely right, of course, to um, concentrate on American isolationism, especially in the Republican Party, because uh, if Trump does believe, as he says, that he can end that war in an afternoon, um, the answer is no, he can't. When we went to uh, Kiev, we asked a lot of the generals and, and ministers about this, and they all said, no, if America drops out, uh, we will fight on. We won't go on the offensive. They won't be able to do that. But there's no way that they're just going to capitulate to the Russians, not whilst there are Russians on uh, Ukrainian territory. So the, the war does not end in an afternoon. It continues, but it continues under much, much worse 
circumstances. David. Now, we should be very clear that President Zelensky has uh, stated absolute willingness to negotiate if the Russians meet the conditions that he has established for that, for which there's, again, bipartisan support, the equivalent of that, if you will, in his parliament. Um, which is essentially Russia withdraws from all their territories, they apologize, they pay reparations, and they take a few other actions that are probably a bit unlikely. Uh, but that's where this stands in that regard, and certainly Putin is not in the least uh, inclined at this point in time to negotiate, certainly in those conditions, really, or on any other conditions. So how do you feel, given all of that, and given the particular focus on Ukraine, if you wake up next November and Donald Trump's back in the White House, or he's re-elected as, as U.S. president? Well, there would be grave concern, but I'd also note that, again, still on Capitol Hill, there are, party, there are members of his party who are very, very strongly uh, in support. I mean, Lindsey Graham, who's in his camp in certain respects, is a very outspoken, the minority leader, the head of the Republican yeah. Party in the Senate, uh, Senator McConnell, is pointed out very helpfully that with two or three percent of the U.S. defense budget, this $44 billion now, we've enabled Ukraine to reduce 60 percent of the Russian tank fleet. I mean, that's not a bad return on investment. <laughs> Just to round things off then, Andrew, having done this, obviously you've, you've looked at other periods of history previously before. Do you, do you think you'd have made a good war leader? No, I'd have been a completely <laughs> useless war leader. Um, I'd have, uh, I think I'd have been able to have given the speeches. I like the idea <laughs> that I might have done that a bit. Well, nice, somewhere nice and white. Uh, well, that's right, exactly. Somewhere, somewhere, preferably about four stories underground, yeah. enthusing the, the populace, I think I'd be able to do. But as far as deciding which country to invade when and under what circumstances, absolutely not, no. And David, have you got a taste for this? Is there another period of history you'd want to, to look at and learn from? I'm still actually pretty seized with the, the here and now. Um, you know, as you noted, I was part of this, actually. Mm. I think it's still very, very relevant to what lies ahead. I'm trying to anticipate the future. We do that with a chapter on the future of warfare. And again, I'm really quite seized with the, this concept of strategic leadership. Uh, and actually, in fact, any listeners that want to explore it more some years ago, we actually created a website at the Belfer Center at Harvard, where I was a fellow for six years, that lays out this whole intellectual construct of the four tasks of a strategic leader. It turns out it's also in hugely relevant in the business world. Yeah. And Reed Hastings with Netflix, I talked about how he reinvented uh, Netflix four times, actually, using a very similar construct. <laughs> and so that, it's actually quite fascinating yeah. to see that and see how applicable that is in all aspects of life. So just on the future then, are we right to think that the future is looking bleaker than perhaps 10, 15 years ago we might have done? I don't know that I would say that, actually. I mean, there have been advances and there have been, you know, there have been ways in which life in general has advanced very impressively. And then there's certainly ways in which there have been new worries, new fears, new, you know, the, I mean, if you think about the last decade, really since I served as director yeah. of the CIA, uh, the world has evolved from one that could be described as benign globalization to one of renewed great power rivalries. That's a very difficult, uh, that's, this has been seismic. It's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, this is tectonic plates kind of stuff. But along the way, there's been a lot of different advances that have actually improved lots in life, as well as there have been some that give you more pessimism about the future. In, in fact, the big challenge of our day from an American perspective uh, but very much from a Western perspective as well, is that 
I strongly believe that U.S. leadership, together with our closest allies and partners, UK being at the, the top of that list, is necessary to keep all these different plates spinning. And by the way, they're not all about the future of warfare. There are still plates that represent Islamist extremist groups around the world. It's still in North Korea. There's a Russia, which has conventionally invaded another country. Obviously, the uh, severe competition, as our national security advisor has described, the relationship. Uh, with China. There are cyber threats that have emerged there in that time. There's even various, you know, extreme weather and all the other new challenges that we face in a, in a much more significant way, which will lead to, over time, water wars and has already led to displacement of populations and human migration and all the rest of this. We've got to keep all those different plates spinning. Uh, and so it's very important, again, in my view, that the U.S. continue to do this. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. That obviously do it as efficiently and effectively as you can, which means always employing uh, partners and allies and keeping those alliances uh, as strong uh, and as current as is absolutely possible. It's absolutely fascinating. Conflict, the evolution of warfare from uh, 1945 uh, to Ukraine. General David Petraeus and uh, historian Andrew Roberts. Thanks so much for joining us on Time Good to be with you. Thank you. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Do get in touch with any thoughts or comments or questions or queries or complaints. You can email me, matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. (laughs) 